Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Saad Musaini, who is the chairman and CEO of the Mobi Group, which was founded right after the fall of the Taliban in Afghanistan in 2002. The Mobi Group started as a small little radio channel in Kabul and now serves over 300 million people through its activities in broadcasting, production, strategic communications, publishing, music, sports, and research. The company has operations, channels, and programs throughout South Asia, Central Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. In this conversation, Saad shares how private media has facilitated the transformation of the public consciousness in Afghanistan. This is a tall order for a country which was not far removed from extreme limitations imposed by Taliban ideology. Through the Mobi Group, Saad and his colleagues aim to bring the people of Afghanistan channels through which they could access news, music, entertainment, as well as unprecedented opportunities to open their minds and express themselves through talkback radio and other forms of social media. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we explore what it means to call a place home, the importance of trusting your instincts in life and in business, the slow and steady spread of liberal views and values in Afghanistan, and the fragility and uncertainty that still exists in Afghanistan. I truly enjoyed this fascinating conversation with Saad, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, I bring you Saad Husseini. Saad Musaini, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate it. So Saad, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Your work and your life is remarkable in many ways, and I'd like to unpack all that with you. But the way I like to kind of start a lot of my conversations is to ask you, in your own words, how would you describe who you are? Well, as an Afghan, certainly family is very important. So we, we, we are to a large extent shaped by members of our families, by the environment we've grown up in, and of course, last but not least, by being Afghans. I think that to a large extent defines who we are. So you could you could probably sum up, I could sum up by saying I'm an Afghan family man, above all else. Yeah, I can completely empathize. And so as I think about my own personal identity as an Afghan American, I often tell people this is the difference in some sense between the two. And it's this, it's that Afghans will die for their families where Americans will die for their freedom. And so I can completely empathize. Family is deeply important for us. And so as we talk about family, help us understand how your upbringing and your, and your family have shaped who you really are. Well, I was um, the oldest son of, a, of an Afghan diplomat, born in London, on the 23rd of April, which is St. George's Day, ironically at St. George's Hospital in London, and uh, lived there for two or three years, went back to Afghanistan, where my brother was born, uh, brothers actually. Then we moved to Pakistan, where my father was the deputy chief of mission in uh, Islamabad, and we were there for about two and a half, three years. We went back to Afghanistan when I was about, I would say, nine, and then we moved to Japan, where he was posted in 1978, where we lived for a couple of years, and the Russians invaded. He resigned from his post. We stayed on for a couple of extra years, trying to figure out where he was going to move to next. And then he decided on Australia uh, for some strange reason. And uh, and then we moved to Australia as a family when I was when I was 16 
1982. Now, that's one interesting trajectory in terms of one's life. So is somebody who has ties to a specific country and a specific homeland, how do you kind of define, in your own words, or this idea of you know, what it means to be home? When you think about the idea of home, what kind of, what does that conjure up in you? You know, you make your own home. I mean, you can feel comfortable living in a tent or multiple tents uh, or in a mansion or in a cave. I, I don't think that's that important. I think you adjust. And home is above all where your family is uh, and where your loved ones are and where your friends are. So for us, I think we were, um, we had this longing for Afghanistan because it was, it was the only consistent thing that we had up until I was 16 because we always believe, you know, the belief always was always there for for a diplomat and his family that we would return to Afghanistan. So that the only consistent thing for us throughout was our home in Kabul, our family and the family orchard where we would visit on weekends, uh, the, the other favorite family destinations around Afghanistan. So that really stood with us. And I think uh, to a large extent, you know, the imagination of a child also sort of amplifies the importance of that home that you, you don't necessarily always have access to. Hmm. That's really curious. Can you say more about this idea of imagination and it playing into your understanding of home? Well, I think when you return to Afghanistan as a kid, as we did often while living outside, it was always warm, surrounded by family members. The weather was always nicer for some reason. Uh, the sky seemed so much bluer than elsewhere. You had the seasons, which was interesting. You had snow, you had beautiful spring weather, you had uh, summers where you, you, you know, you'd be able to go swimming. And Kabul was a relatively advanced city in the sense that we had access to cinemas and theater and stage shows and, and so forth. And you do exaggerate as a kid, of course, no doubts about it, but, uh, but there was something real about the place as well. But I think that because we were not always there, we, didn't, we never took it for granted. I think we had this ability to appreciate the place at the time. And, and I think that sort of stayed with us once we moved out permanently. And that feeling and that longing was, uh, remained very strong until we went back in 2002. So let's talk about that because in 2002, one year after the 9-11 attacks here in the United States, that event brought Afghanistan back on the map for, for Afghans and for the whole world quite literally. And so once the United States went into Afghanistan, at that time cleared out the Taliban, what was the catalyst for you to go back? And what was that feeling like when you first went back in 2002? Well, I mean, a lot of us, we stayed very engaged. And I actually lived in Central Asia, Uzbekistan, uh, for a number of years in the mid-90s which allowed me to get to meet Afghans, get to know Afghans, visit Tajikistan, and even parts of Uzbekistan where people uh, are uh, Persian speakers. There was a real opportunity to reconnect with the region, with the terrain, with the mountains and the people, and of course, Central Asians as well as real Afghans who would visit Central Asia in those days. Um, you know, it's a, the, the peace talks today are reminiscent of the peace talks in the late 90s where a host of Central Asian countries hosted peace talks, not dissimilar to the ones we're seeing today. I think for a lot of us, even pre-Central Asia, there was this longing that if we had the opportunity again, as we did in the early 90s, you know, could we do something different? 
And 2002, the, the sort of post-Bonn Afghanistan, allowed people like us to, to go back and to see for ourselves if we could make a difference, and which is what we did. Upon arriving, how did you kind of see the country? How did it compare then to what you remembered? What was that like for you? It was exactly the same, yet it was completely different. What was interesting for us was, uh, I'm not sure about my brothers, because obviously they're a bit younger, but for us, we would retrace our steps. You know, when we would go to our uncle's house, from our uncle's house to our school. So I had a really good understanding of Afghanistan, having sort of traveled throughout Kabul in my imagination for a good two decades after leaving the country in the late 70s. So the streets were the same, pretty much everything was the same, yet the, the thing that we really noticed was how different the people were. Uh, they were sort of zombie-like in, in, in nature and attitude. They, they just were walking around aimlessly. They had really suffered in the mid-90s, what we tend to forget. So the indigenous Kabulis, the ones who had remained, were zombie-like, but then a lot of other people came very quickly, uh, whether it was from Pakistan and, and Iran, or from, from Europe and the US and Australia. So you had a very interesting bunch of people. But what was interesting was that the mood was euphoric. I think that there seemed to be an opportunity that we can really rebuild this country. You know, we had a clean slate. That's really interesting. So how did how did this idea of a longing for and an imagination of play into the next steps of you starting what is now the Moby Group? How did that kind of all manifest? It was an accident, you know, like most other things in life. We went back with the intention of investing in a series of businesses. We felt that, well, if we create this sort of private equity venture capital fund that would invest in agriculture and and media and various other sectors, that we would be sort of stakeholders when it comes to the redevelopment of the country. And we would partner up with other bright Afghans um, and just see where it takes us to. Um, the media side was very interesting because I had looked at an FM radio opportunity in Uzbekistan. So I had a fair idea in terms of costs and so forth. So when it came to Afghanistan, I was actually meeting with the culture information minister, who ironically was someone my father knew from the 70s. And he just sort of said, well, listen, why don't you guys get into media? And we said, well, is it possible? He said, well, no one's done it. But technically, the Bonn Agreement allows for free media, free independent media. So we went back and we did our research and no one knew how to do it, but we knew it was possible, theoretically. And I was speaking to a friend, um, Pakistani author Ahmed Rashid, who at the time was you know, one of the experts on the Taliban. And uh, his book had become a bestseller because it was, it was out just before 9-11. And he said, well, why don't you leave it with me? And he spoke to the administrator of USAID, Andrew Natsios. And Natsios said, well, if it's a few hundred thousand bucks, we'll do it. So we had the OK from him in principle, but we had challenges back in Kabul because the uh, folks at USAID and the embassy were not that keen on working with the private sector. So although it was a very small grant of $220,000 and we put up $350,000 ourselves, we never viewed it as a business opportunity because we didn't think there was much of an advertising market in Afghanistan. So finally, 
we got it through, we got the license, and we established the radio station, assuming it was going to just slowly pick up listeners. But it just, it was like wildfire. It was just extraordinary. Within a day or two, the entire city was listening to it because it was a mix of pop and talkback and jokes and, you know, female and male DJs. And for the country, it was extraordinary. And uh, so we just got really sucked into the business to an extent, not knowing what the hell we were doing. But uh, it sort of dragged us all in. And, uh, and then we had to abandon all other plans and just focus on the media business. That's really fascinating. So what do you think Afghanistan and the people of Kabul at the time were in desperate need of that you were essentially providing? Like, what was it that you think they were missing? What was the void that was actually created that you were able to kind of step into with, with this with this radio station? Well, I mean, it, it wasn't rocket science. I mean, we were giving them what other people get and like, which is music, which is banter, which is fun, opportunity to express themselves when you have talkback programs, um, news current affairs. I mean, we'd have news on the hour for four or five minutes. So it's sort of all of the above. What was interesting was that we did a really comprehensive survey of a thousand households, which is pretty major. And what we read was just beyond belief. I mean, people said they're not interested in music. People said they're not interested in pop music. They're only interested in religious programs and so forth. But instinctively, we knew that the results were not accurate and people were being less than truthful. So we literally abandoned the survey and went with our instincts. And that's what usually works. Uh, and I think people had a longing for, for normal things. I think that was you know, so extraordinary about the time was that despite saying they don't like it, I mean, the listenership went through the, through the roof. Right, right. And so for the listeners out there that don't understand the context, it's important to note that the Taliban at the time in the 1990s essentially outlawed any media and anything that didn't essentially pertain to Islam and their interpretation of Islam. And so when Afghans took the survey that you implemented, there was a sense of not essentially being truthful with what they wanted. This idea is called a preference falsification because it was so counter to what was socially acceptable at the time. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, the Taliban were essentially the, were the enemies of fun. So anything that brought joy to people, um, it was you know essential for them to ban them. Whether it was watching television or music or radio, there was no private media. So it was only radio sharia that people had access to, and they only had religious chantings, which sort of was the closest thing to music. So people had this huge appetite for entertainment. But in addition to entertainment, they wanted banter. They wanted people to talk about the weather or uh, talk about the news or... They wanted to be able to complain by ringing up the station and listen to the news, which was local, because prior to that, we had the BBC and the VOA, but they were essentially foreign outlets. They may have had Afghan employees, but this was an Afghan-Afghan organization that sort of gave the news to them as Afghans would. So we sort of established this, this very small radio station, and we grew with our audience and of course, we went beyond Kabul, and then we set up a TV station, and that TV, that station became a, na a national network, and then we had a second net TV network, and a third TV network, and then a second radio network. And so we, we sort of grew that business. It took a few years, but that business continued to grow. And today, our group has a pretty dominant reach in the country. 
I think collectively they, they have something like 60, 65% of the market, which is quite extraordinary. But there's always a fine line in terms of being didactic and saying this is what's good for you and also giving people carte blanche in terms of what they want because sometimes they're not sure what they want. So that's why you have to always expose them to new things. Now, there are always risks of going overboard, uh, which we've done, but it's important to always be, you have your finger on the pulse to be able to retrace your steps if you need to. But it's been an extraordinary uh, learning curve for us as well. And uh, But things are not static. Things change constantly. And how people consume content in the country is is continuing to change. Yeah, it's incredible. How do you think, as somebody who's been there since 2002, doing these surveys of a 1,000 homes, to now having 66% of the market share in terms of media content in Afghanistan, how do you think the work that you've done and the, the work that your family has done in terms of what the Mobi Group has offered Afghanistan, how do you think that's transformed the country? Well, I, you know, what we've done is we, I think we have facilitated social change, not imposed it, facilitated social change. I think we've brought forward what was inevitable. I think in this sort of well, this connected, you know, world, it's difficult to sort of remain in the sort of 15th century. So I think that we fast-tracked some of the changes that the country was going to see anyway. I think what worked in our favor was our young population. When we came back to Afghanistan, the median age was about 17. I think it's about 18 now. So Afghanistan remains probably the youngest country outside of sub-Saharan Africa, even today. So as young people listening to the radio or watching TV, they're far more receptive to change than their parents. So the media, I think the, the media has played sort of three or four important roles. Firstly, you inform. I think that's really important, whether it's a, a new technology or what's going on in, in the world or news stories, both domestic and international. Secondly, you educate. I think that's really important. For us, education is not just about a program on climate change, but it's also the ability of having the capacity to think critically. And uh, that it's something that's lacking in our part of the world. And I think that's really important. Thirdly, you entertain. I think it's really important for people to get entertained. You know, you people work long hours, they come home, they need to be entertained, they need to watch soap operas and music programs. I think it's important for your soul to be entertained, to laugh. And last but not least, in a, in a country where the government is weak, our institutions don't really work, I think for most people, when they have an issue today, they don't go to the police or they don't ring the prosecution, they ring the media. And I think that allows society to let off steam. Uh, I, I think for a lot of people, it's very satisfying to see a story get covered. Even if they don't have justice, I think there's a form of justice when they see an issue covered. It's it, it's not uncommon for us to get literally hundreds of calls a day on issues. It's some very important, like the military and the military being surrounded and the, the defense ministry not attending to their needs. This was a few years back. And then us forcing the government to react and basically playing tapes of soldiers ringing us. So, you know, but that basically the minister wasn't aware of. I mean, at the time, the minister of defense, who has since, since left, was not aware of what was going on in the camp whereas the media was. Uh, so these small things uh, make a difference. And of course, the day-to-day -day stuff, people getting their houses confiscated by warlords or traders attempting to price gouge consumers, uh, people getting beaten up, 
all sorts of things like that. I, I think what's extraordinary about Afghanistan, and of course uh, uh, there are many other media outlets, it's a collective effort, and the credit should go to all, is how free the Afghan media is. It's dangerous, it's risky, but it's very free. It's freer than India, it's freer than most of South Asia, it's definitely freer than Central Asia, and no country in the Middle East and North Africa can compete with it. But I think you read about Hungary and you read about even Poland today. There are a lot of countries, in, in certainly in Eastern Europe, including Russia, that do not have the freedom that we have in terms of media. And I think that's a really important thing because it's a very much it's, it's part of our DNA in Afghanistan where people are actually are not afraid to express themselves. Yeah, I think that's really great. So I have to ask a more nuanced question, specifically as it pertains to the role of women, of girls in the context of Afghanistan. How do you think the channels of expression that you've provided, that the Mobi Group has provided, has changed the way women see themselves in Afghan society? So again, it's, it's about not being didactic and it's, it's about facilitating social change. For us, it was, it was not to lecture people, it's to show people. Even early years, uh, we had female newsreaders and young girls hosting different programs on the radio and television, uh, female role models. We would highlight the achievements of young women. And as much as we sort of, we dis we're dismissive of soap operas, whether they're from India or Turkey, they do have, they tend to have strong female role models. So I think all of these things have, have, have played an important role. But in a place like Afghanistan, it's also the realities on the ground, economic realities uh, amongst others. I think if you're a, a family that has difficulties making ends meet, you're going to be more open to your wife teaching at the school or your daughter going to work. So I think those things also have pushed people. It's funny because you, you ask many Afghans, semi-conservative Afghans, if they are for women's rights and they sort of say, well, I'm not too sure. But if you ask them, does your wife work? And they say, well, yes, she works at an all-girls school or does your daughter go to school or university? They say, oh, yes, they do that. So I, I tend to judge people more by their actions than what they say. I think that we are super conservative in what we say, but probably more flexible in terms of what we do. Yeah, I think that's right. And so I have to ask you, Saad, and the work that you're kind of doing and the, and the example that you're setting, what's it like in some sense to know that you and the work that you've done since 2002 has been largely responsible for unlocking the minds of so many people throughout the country? I'm talking millions of people. What does that sense of responsibility feel like to hold? And if you could kind of talk about responsibility writ large as it pertains to the country. Well, I, I think it's sort of, uh, we've helped. Uh, the problem is we don't know what the future has in store for us. All of these can be reversed very quickly if we have an oppressive regime like the Taliban return. Uh, say the Taliban of the 1990s. To be fair to the Taliban, let's, let's assume that they've changed somewhat from those days. With zero tolerance of anything that resembles the 21st century, then all of these gains will be reversed. And... It'll be even more tragic because people have experienced these freedoms only to get deprived of them in 2020. So I think it's, a it's, a, it's, a, it's really important for all of us, actually, collectively, 
to ensure that the peace deal doesn't produce something that's going to take us back. And of course, the world has an obligation. I think a lot of Americans in particular, and other internationals will say, well, it's up to the Afghans to decide. But if you for 20 years give people hope and you tell them that we will never abandon you and you encourage young women and uh, members of our mi minorities to go to school, to go to work, and then to just pull back suddenly, it's grossly unfair and immoral, I think. And I think that's why world continued world engagement is so important. Now, of course, people say, well, the world can't forever carry the Afghans. That may be true, but I think if you just sort of take a step back and look at the whole history since 1979, when the Russians invaded, well, the world encouraged the Afghans, gave them money to fight the Soviets. The world has played an important role, both in a good way and also in a very negative way. Yeah, so let's talk about that, Saad. I mean, we're talking about 40 years of war in Afghanistan now, and we're in peace talks with the Taliban. So given your insight and your understanding of the country and the landscape and the sentiment of the people, what do you think is basically missing from the discourse as it pertains to the peace negotiations with the Taliban? How do you kind of understand what's going on? I don't think there's any human being, well, let's assume that 95% of all humanity would prefer peace over war. I think that's, for, for the Afghans, it's probably more like 99%. The 1% because they have vested interests and they don't want to see peace. But I think peace is something that no Afghan would reject. The, the devil's in the detail. What type of peace? And the other thing is that, will it be a peace that the Afghans agree to or will it be imposed on us? because people need to leave or people need to cut costs and reduce funding for Afghanistan and so forth. So I think it's really important to understand that it has to be a just peace and it, it needs to reflect the will of the Afghan people. Now, what's interesting is that the Taliban continues to remain a very unpopular movement, not because they have conservative views, more because they're very di dictatorial. I, I don't think, I think we we can tolerate anyone's views. If you, someone wants to be very strict and have a very narrow view of Islam, that's fine as long as it's, you know, it's their way of living their lives. But if it's imposed on the rest of the population, that's what most Afghans have an issue with. So we have to be very cognizant of what the majority of Afghans want, in particular women, in particular minorities, in particular young people, and be just very mindful that a quickly executed peace deal imposed by, let's say, the Americans, because it would then somehow justify their exit from Afghanistan. It's not one that may suit the Afghan nation. I think that's what we have to be very careful of. And I think mistakes have been made over the last few years. And um, and certainly the, the Taliban, we would need to accommodate that constituency one way or the other. But I think an open society where the radicals get absorbed into it is probably the best solution but that may not be acceptable to them. They may want to renegotiate the, the constitution, our laws, and so forth. So the concern that we have is that we're going to go back. The question is, will we go back 20 years or will we go back 200 years? Mind you, I don't think Afghanistan was ever as backward as the mid-1990s, not even five centuries ago. So this is what we need to figure out. And the Taliban believe that they've won the war against the Americans. They believe they have a deal with the Americans. And they're almost dismissive 
of what our side, which is the Islamic Republic side, represents. And they believe that the post-Bonn order of 2001 onwards is a foreign-imposed political order that's totally alien to to Afghanistan and our culture and uh, cultural and religious norms. So they have this disconnect and they don't even understand Afghanistan because many of them have not been inside of Afghanistan. And they obviously they send their fighters who blow themselves up and, and so forth. But most of them are totally oblivious to the changes that we've seen in the country over the last two decades. Right. I think what's really important is to point out this really key element of what you're saying and the Taliban fighters that come into Afghanistan from across the border from Pakistan, they go into the countryside or if they come into the cities, they blow themselves up and they don't go back to tell others what's happening. So they don't get to essentially see the changes. And if they do, they don't get to report back, right? Yes. They only come in to blow themselves up. So they they never have the opportunity to go back and tell the stories. It's somebody who kind of understands the Western mind and understands the Afghan psyche. What do you think people outside of Afghanistan often don't understand fully about the country, its people, and its culture? What's the thing that you think is often misunderstood about Afghanistan? I think they view Afghans as a sort of very combative race of people, warrior-like in nature, unwilling to sit still or to consider peaceful options. Uh, You know, I think that we have become that. Uh, you know, we were part of this proxy war between the Americans and the Soviets for at least a decade until the breakup of the Soviet Union. But prior to that, I mean, if you look at, you know, sort of the early 1900s up until the late 70s, Afghanistan was a stable country. Sure, the Americans and the Soviets were involved trying to influence the government, but there was no fighting and there was no war. People were not killing each other. Afghans are capable of coexisting and not fighting each other. I think that's one important thing. The other thing is that Afghans as a people, and, you know, we, we, you know, we've, we've done a lot of controversial programs, music and otherwise, are fairly tolerant, I think, ultimately. And they have this capacity for change. They're great copiers. If they see an interesting idea, they tend to copy it in a good way. Critical thinking, as I mentioned before, and I think that's across the Muslim world, I think it's a, it's a challenge, but that's coming. It's extraordinary. You listen to these young people, you know, argue a point or debate an issue, uh, how well and how they speak and how eloquent they've become and how ambitious they are. So this generation of young Afghans, 60% of which, you know, are under the age of 20, are the ones we have to think about. And ironically, decisions are made by a much older generation, whether on our side, the Republican side, or on the Taliban side. Or on the American side, you know, Khalilzad's in his 70s, and um, I'm pretty certain that no American is under the age of 50 when making these types of decisions. No, that's a very good point. It's often interesting how older people end up making decisions that the younger generation, whether here in the United States or in Afghanistan or all across the world, end up implementing or having to follow. Yeah. As we kind of wrap up here, I'm curious to know, what is the thing that you wish for the people of Afghanistan? I mean, I think ultimately you want them to prosper, but before they prosper, they need to live in peace. I think the single most important thing for people is is to, you know, for them to stop experiencing what they're experiencing on a daily basis. Explosions, assassinations, uh, inability to travel from city to city because of, you know, a lot of our highways are no longer secure. 
I think that to most of us is the single most important thing. So people can actually live in peace. I mean, not knowing your kid, if there's an explosion, if your kid has been targeted. I mean, I think for every Afghan living in every major city, that's an issue on a daily basis. It's funny because many of our Afghan ministers whose families live outside always tell us, why do you have to go with breaking stories? And I say, well, because people need to know. If it's in the west of Kabul, people need to know if their family members are okay, assuming that they live there. So I think that's important. The other important thing is how to get this economy growing again in a very organic sort of a way. Right now, we've we've had 20 years of a rentier economy where we've had funding from the international community, but zero accountability. So people don't get the things that they need. They get the things that the world thinks that they need, but executed in a way that's not beneficial to anyone. Like, for example, roads. You know, the road projects get tendered for $2 million a kilometer, which then gets subcontracted to a company, say, out of Turkey for $500,000 a kilometer, who then subcontracts to an Afghan company for $100,000 or $200,000 a kilometer. And that road breaks down in about six months or 12 months or maximum a year, for example. So this has been development in the country. They build schools only in name. Subcontractors try to steal money. They don't actually build the actual schools. We don't build capacity. We haven't trained enough teachers. So we've gone about the whole thing in a sort of a roundabout, weird way, because it's a rentier economy. It's not a real economy. But if we as the taxpayers, and the state still generates about $2.5 billion from people like us and from customs duties, we're going to be far more responsible in terms of spending money from within Afghanistan. And because I think we're going to say, what the hell? You know, why aren't you, you know, you've got all this money from our taxes. Why aren't you building these schools in, in the manner you should? So I think just looking back, I think one of the issues has been has been that, that we have not gone about this in a way that would make Afghanistan sustainable. So peace, economic development, which entails capacity building, and how to give Afghans the sense that they can make a difference, that they could rebuild their economy and play a role regionally, a bit like the South Koreans in the 50s and 60s. We don't have this, we don't have the sense of entitlement. I think a lot of our countries, a lot of countries like ours in South Central Asia and Africa, where it's been transformed into these rentier economies, people have this sense of entitlement that the world should give them certain, some things. We have to give people the sense that we have to do things on our own. Yeah. That's the one thing I think about too, is like, I'm, you know, living in the United States, this idea of having a sense of agency is quite literally one of the most important things as it pertains to feeling like you are the agent for change in your life. And the sense of believing that you are capable of doing the thing that you need to do is something that I'm not sure exists in a place like Afghanistan to the extent that it needs to, right? Yeah, we have to shake people up a little bit and to say, well, listen, you have to step out of this sort of the shadow of your religious leaders, your tribes, your families, you have to learn to do things on your own. And that's why critical thinking is so important because you, you know, a lot of Afghans grow up believing or not challenging what the community leader tells them or what the religious leader tells them or even what their parents tell them. I think people need to figure things out on their own. And that's how you develop uh, entrepreneurship in that country. That's amazing. So Saad, with that said, I'd like to um, you know, wrap up things here and, and ask one final question of you. What's your message for the world? Well, uh, don't forget us. 
And I think Afghanistan, I know it's been a, it's a frustrating topic for many people in DC or Brussels or London. There's a moral responsibility to, to not re-engage in a very abrupt manner and to, to actually adopt a more sort of a, a policy that sort of transitions from what we, what we have today to something that resembles a, a fully independent country. Thank you for that message, Saad, and um, thank you for this conversation. It's been really insightful. Keep doing what you're doing, sir. I really appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi digital marketing by Catherine Ahn, artwork by Mashida Hadi, and theme music by Kais Esaur. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.